Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. For this episode, I sat down with Yamhill County Commissioner and candidate for Oregon Governor Casey Kula. I first met Commissioner Kula in December 2020 when he was embroiled in a debate about the Yamhellis Westsider Trail, a rail trail project he pushed for strongly only to see it stopped in February of this year when he found himself on the losing end of a two to one vote with his fellow commissioners fueled by the opposition of dozens of local farmers. Kula understood both sides of the issue because he runs a farm himself. Being a farmer in rural Oregon who supports public land access and rail trail projects is just one of many facets of Kula's background that give him a legitimate claim to being a rare Oregon politician who just might be able to bridge the much-talked-about urban-rural divide. From growing up in an evangelical household to working at a bike shop as a teenager on the Oregon coast and living car-free during his college days in Bellingham, Washington, Kula owns a diverse set of perspectives that have helped inform his collaborative and respectful approach to politics. We talked about how surfing defines his political style, the perils of ecofascism when it comes to tackling climate change, the limits of being nice in the face of extremism, how the Yamhellis Westsider Trail Project is like critical race theory, his ideas for reforming the Oregon Department of Transportation, and much more. Here's our conversation. To kind of like help help set some context for folks who don't know Casey Kula, um, uh, I, and I know you're you're so, you're not easily defined, and I know that you actually personally don't like labels and in quick little, you know, <laughs> here's a progressive farmer from from rural county, like you know these like these you know just really uh, you know trite sort of ways of introducing politicians that are very label centric. I know you're not into that, sure. So I'll let you do it. So so who is Casey Kula, and and not as a politician? It's not. Yeah. I don't. We don't want to hear your pitch just yet. But totally. Casey Kula as a person. Who, who who are you? This it sounds terrible, and, and you, you know, I shouldn't say this, but in some ways, um, I spent my my really young adult years as extremely introspective. Um, I was raised in a conservative Baptist church, like an evangelical community, and um, there's a lot of introspection around sin and guilt and like your relationship with a deity, and so I feel like. I'm slowly learning to just be here in the community and observe the world. And that's an unsatisfying answer. But the like maybe more specific is uh, for the past 15 years, I farmed with my wife full time. Um, and our, our, our community is like is focused around food and place and knowing the landscape better and better. Yeah. So you born and raised in Oregon, or yeah? Or? So born and raised um, in Lincoln City. Lincoln City. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So I spent a lot of time. I was a competitive swimmer because there was nothing to do, but there was a really nice pool, um, and so I swam around the around the country. And then um, I would say, so my mom's a nurse. Uh, she still works full time as a nurse. My dad was the city attorney, and um, they saw like the they saw the ocean in its in its darkest most dangerous moments Mm. um you know the people pulled in lifeless right yeah um the suits against the city for people being swept out and um but i had this thing where i was like i want to surf yeah and i don't know really where it came from but i was like i want to be out there in the ocean because it's really it's hard to be out in the ocean it's cold it's it's rough um and so i set this plan where i was like okay I think that by the time I'm 15, I bet I can convince my parents. And so I started when I was 13. So this two-year plan to convince them that I could serve. I considered my like greatest negotiation to convince my parents who the ocean is where people go to die. Yeah. And then I feel like that in many ways that then is um, that has defined 
me in, in so many ways is just that relationship with the ocean. Uh, but relationship with land, too, because I mean, you, yeah. you actually live on an island, which I find kind of fascinating. Right. I had to look it up on Google Maps before yeah. you came over. What, where, where do you Home live? Home of the, tell, the Heiser Farm Cyclocross. I know, I saw yeah. that. So t- give folks an idea of like, how, how do you live on an island in, in rural Yamhill County? What, right, right. Like? So, um, you know, the river, the Willamette River uh, traditionally spread across all of the Willamette Valley, you know, braided channels. Um, it would jump jump its um, the bounds every winter and create new channels. Uh, and one of those became a big oxbow. And then in the 1880s, it got cut through um, and created an island. And um, there's a bridge across to it. It's like 3,000 acres altogether, the island, which is to say it's like 15% the size of Savi Island. And, but it's like it's this amazing mix of exclusive farm use zone land that's really, really productive. Like it's the best soil in the world, really, for growing particular things. And it has the most water for irrigation purposes. And yet at the same time, there's 1,000 acres of lowland river forest, which is the like cottonwoods and ashes and so it's this mix of really intense industrial agriculture and also wild areas neat it's incredible it sounds really exclusive and i know it's not but you when you say you live on an island i'm always like oh my right, gosh right. there's gonna it be does. a gate i'm so. thinking florida or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay but <laughs> i love it <laughs> so what, there's what? always jokes about blowing up the bridge if things get too wild so but um so uh, i want to get kind of more more specific here so tell me about things this one thing i always ask folks is sort of like what's your personal slash family what's your relationship to transportation what is your sort of story around how you've gotten around most of your life how you get around now as a as a kid i grew up you know on 101 you know highway 101 is the 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 route right Mm. um and uh because the coast is a place that there's not a lot there wasn't a lot happening in the 90s um the guy who opened the first bike store and the first bike shop was like hey uh you want to build bikes for me and so as a 14 and 15 year old, um, I would go in, you know, I would say after classes, but it's not totally true. And I'd build bikes for $100 a bike, and which at the time was screaming good money. And so it it became the opportunity to build a bike for myself and start riding, right? Um, and have access, you know, it's, it's a freeing thing to, to be able to move around without requiring, you know, a, a parent or a car. So then I started exploring the mountains, the coast range. So that was that's like one part of my world is, um, you know, negotiating and navigating uh, Highway 101 Um, as a as a young person. It was like the best way to learn about, as we talked about earlier, there are landscapes that are literally not safe for people. And I wonder if it sort of started to stoke your fire for being sort of an ODOT agitator and a transportation reform person. Which yeah, we'll I think so. Later, but. Yeah, so, but um, I, uh, so I moved to Bellingham, Washington for college. And um, I realized recently when we took our kids kind of on a tour of Bellingham that um, I didn't know how to get around in a car. I didn't know. I, I was like, okay, let's see. We want to go to past the hospital. How do, oh my gosh, I've never used a car to get there yeah it was a really weird thought but um i think that i was trying to type this out the other day in a tweet and i was realizing that um because i see people not get radicalized by their cycling but i don't i don't think that's the appropriate term develop a more intense relationship with the world maybe my wife and i became essentially radicalized pedestrians and and cyclists um you know where like my wife who's an, an amazing compassionate strong articulate person would like pound her head hand on the hoods of cars 
like you are pulling out in front of me bam and um i just i realized that that's just how we live but Mm. that's probably not how people live if they're not walking and cycling everywhere so we always lived in downtown bellingham when we were in college um and then when we were in graduate school as well Mm. and then we lived in in between graduate school and undergrad we lived in the mountains in an intentional community uh in the north cascades in washington and there there were the only vehicles were the vehicles that we drove down to the lake to lake chelan the 12 miles down um to pick up um you know food and luggage and so I literally only drove, you know, a, a, we called it the the two ton. You know, it's weird uh, to think that there are different points in your life when you can just not have to drive a car. Mm. And then even with the farm, um, for a while, with the intense level of I've got, you know, a crew of five that I'm responsible for and we're delivering vegetables every week. I literally wouldn't leave the farm except to drive the box truck the 13 miles to town and back. And I was putting 26 miles a week on the car. <laughs> so there's phases, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what I know, I mean, it, like to to think, to put it back into the place that we are in now, what I know is that our landscapes are just so dangerous for people who aren't in cars. And we don't have to have that. No, we certainly don't have to have that. And I think that that's one thing I find interesting about your perspective is that you have a lot of different lived experiences. And especially as like a, a transportation oriented person, you also have a lot of different sort of transportation modes and environments that, that you oh operated in. Yes. But Including the, driving the tractor on the road, right? Oh, yeah. there's, okay, yeah. that's good. So I, w- I want to get into that too, but I think it's uh, important for people to understand because you are running for like the highest office in Oregon. Right. H- how do you describe your political style? Um, I always, um, I always talk about it as um, you might think that I'm a moderate because we always get the best decision. That's for everybody. The decision that's best for everybody out of any situation, but it's because I'm coming from the, the most progressive side of things and pushing it to make sure that we get something that works for everybody from that kind of side. So I, I find myself as like the, I start from a really almost a radical position and work with everybody to find something that works. That's my political style, right? Yeah. yeah it's a kind of a... It, I, was, I was weighing that against some of the research I did about you and some of the <laughs> interviews and just some of the policy work that I'm aware of. And I'm, one thing that I've been intrigued by is your attempt to stay positive and respectful. Actually, you, you like to use the word loving, that you love your opponents, that you're not necessarily respecting people who disagree with you, but you just love people, which, you know, you have this yeah. sort of gift, I think, of being corny, but pulling it off somehow. <laughs> I say you can be sort of corny and stuff, but pull it off. I think there's some people that wouldn't say that, right? I mean, I think that speaks to kind of like where my political leanings are sure. in, in some ways. And I have, I have a feeling that a lot of people would say you don't pull it off, but we'll maybe get to that later. But, but, but I'm so, but, you know, I just feel like, you know, um, you know, that's, a, it's a laudable way to act. I find myself, I, I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that perspective of, of like, res, you know, respecting opponents and that's where the real magic is. And, and once you understand why people disagree with you and you can actually have a conversation with them that doesn't devolve into yelling, you can actually mm-hmm. make progress, but boy, I've, and also nothing's ever done. Like, I feel like there's never, well, it, like, you well, get to a note and you're like, uh, this is just the beginning. Well, sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah, you, but, no, I, but like, it, I feel like that's part of it. It is, but I think you say that, but I I know that there have been some people that you've sort of gone up against who don't see it that way. And totally. I think there's a there's a part of me that think that thinks, you know, that it's a laudable way to act, but lo- that, that laudable part 
has its limits, mm-hmm. or or do you think it has limits? Because, you know, um, hmm. you you, know, you think about that for a sec. But like yeah. you know, you say on your website, you say that you know extremism in politics is a a threat to the most basic tenets of our society, right? W- which I agree with, um, and that Oregonians must stand up and say no, not here. Uh, but you know, um, extremism isn't always in the form of like a gun-toting proud boy at a protest. Like we've seen recently, I think extremism can happen behind the desk of an elected official. I mean, just this week in Newburgh with the school board ousting the superintendent with no cause, no warning. Uh, and I think even to some degree with the controversial debate around the Yamhelis West Sider Trail, when you had elected officials in office, you know, making very accusatory comments about city staff uh, and doing things that a lot of people in the community were very uncomfortable with. And that person's now facing a recall, but we may talk about that in a minute. But so that I feel like is also extremism. It is so, absolutely, how and I'm you, talking to that. Obviously. Yeah, but so I'm curious how you, as someone who has this approach that's you know nice and collaborative mm-hmm. and consensus, how do you justify that with people who are using that kind of extremism that you yourself said we must say no, not here? How do you balance this idea that we must you know we must love our opponents mm-hmm. and respect them and work together? Um, on one hand, but then you also say we must, you know, that that political extremism is a huge threat to our system. Yeah. You know, how, you can't. Can you meet that kind of extremism even even when it happens at a desk? Can mm-hmm. you meet that with being nice? Are there limits to that? Um, first of all, I because I came from a world I was raised in a world where everything was black and white. Um, I'm totally comfortable with the tension of things being contradictory. Um, because we're we're all complicated and we don't we I don't think we all know we know ourselves. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that other people don't know themselves um, fully. And um, I I think that society is an organism just like each of us is our own little organism. Um, you know, like I have an ecology degree, right? So I see things as they're connected. And I, one thing I really believe is that when you get, um, I feel compelled to work with people um, who are in elected office um, because that's what people told us we should do, right? We, we said, I, wanna, I want that person to work with me um, or to work with that person. But on the other side, so what I see is this, um, I don't think it's a dichotomy, but I think it's two ways of doing it. And I say that two ways of doing it because that's what I do right now, which is uh, when somebody is in elected office who is extreme, who does not represent um, the values um, of a community um, and really isn't looking out for everybody. And I'm comfortable saying that um, you work with the community to remove them from office. That's just like, that's what you do, right? So I I, I was late because um, I was waiting to speak at the, the Newburgh school board um, kind of rally. Mm. Uh, and there were so many tears there and there were so many people who were like, we are, we are fighting back. We're pushing back and embracing our own community. So, in, so instead of directing your, maybe it's anger or frustration, your, so instead of directing your energy toward that person who's mm-hmm. disagreeing or doing something you don't think is right, you're saying you maintain sort of that political uh, balance or, right. or, or respect and you take that energy and direct it to the community. To the organizing. To right? the organizing, and maybe you're a little bit more direct over there. Although I have a feeling, I would be willing to bet that at that when you made that speech in Newburgh today, 
you weren't mentioning anybody by name and you were being very careful because I think that's just your style, which I think is going to be an unanswered question in terms of how far mm -hmm. that's going to take you. Yeah, um, for sure. Especially since, you know, we're going to, we, we may even get a good test of that with, um, you know, Senator Betsy Johnson being in the race, who yeah. also is a rural, well, used to be a Democrat, sounds like she's going to, she's going to change her party to an independent, but she's, I, I don't know enough about Oregon politics to say that she, she has the opposite style of you, but she's certainly not known as somebody who... She's direct. She's direct. Uh, so... I live in the. I, I grew. I grew up in the political world as an organizer, an agitator around um, a land use fight around a quarry, a gravel quarry, and um, so what I've realized is that you can make all the decisions that you want in that space where you're quote the leader or the decision maker, but there nothing's going to stick unless you have the community buy-in, and so I feel like I'm always doing the um, like community buy-in. Um, talks with people, you know, talks with decision makers. So when you get into the room, it's all about just explaining your vote because you know it's going to happen. Yeah, and that also that also brings up something for me in terms of like you say that your number one priority is climate change, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you look at your political style, I think you've actually said this, which is about building things up building mm -hmm. foundations, working on relationships, going to meet people where they are, all right. things that take a tremendous amount of time. Mm -hmm. But then you also say climate change is your top priority, something that we don't have the luxury of waiting for that arc to bend. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to do that quickly. And I think that's the appeal of, of that other side on the right, let's say the burn it down folks. The appeal is that they can do big things really quickly with that right. way of doing things. They can go and and, they can uh, tear it down really quickly. They can get a majority, pass mm -hmm. something without anybody, you know, knowing about it and move yeah. on. Or, or they can, you know, stop a trail project yeah. like like happened here with when they were in the majority. So that's another thing that I guess you're saying you're saying the way you'd sort of get around that is like while you're doing maybe the slow build uh, in, in the offices and with the suits mm -hmm. on, you're also trying to stoke the community to pressure more speed. Like, how do you balance right. those two things? Right. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's um, they're climate change is and will be the ultimate test addressing it like really addressing it in a way that sticks will be the ultimate test i believe of our ability to have a democratic society because you're right that like we have to act with urgency but we also have to make sure that everybody is on board at some point and has some stake in it because otherwise it will be the ultimate in um uh, ecofascism. I mean, to to be honest, if we think if I see a lot of authoritarianism and a lot of proto-authoritarianism um, on the right right now, and you know it's because of the world that I inhabit, um, where where people in positions of authority tell other people what to do that they don't have any authority over, essentially, is is what I see a lot of, and I see a patterns of it throughout society, and. Essentially, if we're saying we have to address climate change and there's no, there can't be any conversation about it, we have to do it. That is its own form of like authoritarianism. And so what I, the the very first political speech that I gave, um, which is quote speech, because I was just, I gave a talk to our E.M. Hill County Democrats. And then I wrote a, an op-ed after that was um, that climate change is ultimately always local. And climate action has to be local as well. And so it looks different in every community, what people will choose to take on. And I do think that 
in some communities, it just has to be, we're doing this to reduce the threat of wildfire here, or we're doing this to have more water in our community. And that's where the state government and that's where the federal government comes in because we still need to do the reducing emissions, right? Mm -hmm. But there has to be something tangible that people benefit from in their own community. It, it It's sort of funny to me to hear you talk about local control because you said you say that's one of your main your main things that you talk about by saying you know we need local problems local solutions. I try not to say local control though because that's well, sorry well, I should let you go. But still, but still, you know, talking about giving more power to people in local areas right. and just having sort of the state being this sort of framework and a funder and enabler, let's say. Right. And and I think that's funny. I mean, it's sort of a, a dichotomy to me because I know that some of your opponents probably think that you know you're doing the bidding of Metro, this regional planning authority, <laughs> right? Which kind of brings me into the conversation about the Yamhelis West Sider Trail. Wait a segue. Well, ter in terms of like, you know, people being concerned about governmental control. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of the opposition to that was really about stopping Portland creep and not being against the trail necessarily. Um, but you also said, you know, the mm. importance of, of bringing people on board, uh, which I think is central to the issue with, with that trail. But before we get into a few questions about that, can you please share like an elevator pitch? And I know nuance is really important to you. Yeah. I'm the same way, but just, you know, in, in the interest of time and, and helping people get up to speed really quick to like, you know, the last couple of months, what happened there? Yeah. So the Yam Hellas West Trail was a project 20 years in the making to develop um, a footpath on 12 and a half miles of abandoned uh, Union Pacific Rail. And um, the county was able to purchase it. And they applied to themselves, because that's the complicated thing, to, to put a trail in, in as a conditional use permit process uh, adjacent to farmland. And they have to prove in that that there's no significant impact to farms. I believe we met that test. Uh, my kind of my thing all along is trails are good for people and they're good for the place. They're good for the communities. And we also can't be doing things that are going to harm farmers. And we met that test, but then opposition rose to it. And in my view, opposition rose to it because people from other places um, and even with our community identified it as something that they could um, like critical race theory that they could use. It was be easy and they could fight against I was the one thing I remember listening to that commission, uh, that board, the Yamhill Board of Commissioners um, uh, meeting on, I think it was February 4th of this year. The big meeting where the decision happens, four and a half hours. And that's the meeting where you essentially were in the, the minority with one vote and two people voted to basically tell uh, the, count, the, the county it was time to scrap it and just stop progress on it and pay back the grants and all that stuff. Folks can read about that online. We're not going to get into all those details here. But what struck me about that meeting, though, was hearing Commissioner Bershauer, Lindsay Bershauer and Commissioner Mary Starrett just just seemed to me it's sort of the ultimate test of the Kula, you know, the Kula principle. As they talked about it, they just had zero interest in 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 discussing in terms of like they didn't think it was going to be possible at all. And they 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 were not open to that possibility uh, whatsoever. Hours before the vote even happened, I, I remember Bershauer saying something like, We're stuck. There's no way out of this. Not to mention all the false and accusatory things she was saying. She was saying, you know, they're stuck. There's no way out of this. Uh, Commissioner Starrett said something out again hours before the vote. So this is hours before there was supposed to be a debate and discussion. Uh, Commissioner Starrett said, the train has left the station. So you were in a really impossible position, weren't you, on that debate? For sure. For sure. I mean, we, um, uh, I held out hope, um, I will say, um, th that we we could come to a place but it was it became clear that the 
long ago their minds were set on it you know um and they've i i mean i think about that all the time right i, I came came back from our um our little cabin office um to my son bawling <laughs> so hard for him it was mm. so hard for him to understand that something that was good mm. wasn't going to happen and he's old enough to have really understood what had just happened yeah it's like you know people in his community fighting for years for this what your son probably thinks is a pretty cool thing uh, a rail trail that w- that would get him around town on his bike without worrying about those high speed roads yep and then he's old enough to probably I'm imagining uh eavesdropping in on that meeting and realizing that it that it was done yeah yeah and you know I, one thing I've realized though because I went I, I said you know n- you know nothing's ever done and I think that's one of the important things with community organizing uh, but it's also an important thing for decision makers when they're in the minority um, to understand is that um, it it takes a lot more work but it's not done right right and and I you know just um, uh, just last month there was or in September I think there was a results of a survey that came out uh, yeah. and this was a survey by the Shehalem Parks and Recreation District mm-hmm. they paid who, you know ten thousand dollars for a survey a professional survey uh, 400 respondents it showed what 64 percent of people support the trail uh, only 16 percent of people surveyed said they oppose it and 20 percent said they weren't sure so I'm, I think I would probably say 15% of those are going to support it once they learn more. Right. So you do have a strong amount of support from sure. people. That's what's important. And yeah. to me, it's been frustrating for some of the coverage and some of the commentary around the Yamhellas debate that talks about this is a great symbol of this urban-rural divide. And I feel like they're just you know making it seem like a bigger divide than it really is. It's It seems to me we're talking about a few dozen powerful farmers and and, and a lot of outside money. Who doesn't want to, you know? Who wants to just kill it for the for the principle of it? Uh, but do you do you, so? So you don't? Do you agree that? I mean, I'm thinking specifically sort of like a big article in July in the High Country News, which a lot of people have read, and that's for a lot of people their only entry into the Yamhellas uh, discussion. Do you agree with that framing in general? I mean, in terms of the trail, do you think the trail is a good illustration of the urban rural divide? No, I think that it was. Um, I mean, my my sense is that um, a small small number of people. Um, hired themselves a candidate and they they got what they wanted and um, we have you know farmers as you are probably very aware um, farmers in Oregon and in many other places um, have wielded a lot of power um, to get what they want even when a community doesn't want the same thing and it's clear all along that there was tremendous community support for this i actually came into it i like i ran for office being like i don't know like let's let's look at the data let's let's find out if it's going to hurt farmers or if it's simply going to be positive for the community and despite all that despite the fact that you support it so strongly despite the fact that the facts are uh you know a lot of people support the trail you even have regional elected officials who've come to your side and said you know they really agree with the trail and they don't agree with how those other commissioners handled handled the issue even with that i don't necessarily i don't necessarily see you and this gets back to our early conversation about political style I haven't, and maybe I've missed it, but I haven't seen you sort of go on the offensive. I mean, you certainly have all the, 
you have all the right. I was going to say ammunition, but I, I I don't like to use war and battle I know, references in politics. Yeah. Uh, so you I, have I every... kept myself from saying yeah. fight yeah. when I was at the it, Newburgh it, School it's, Board. Stuff it's today. tough because I know people relate to certain words, but then there's like principles about using th- words. But but so you, I feel like you had you would have every reason to sort of be more public about your disappointment and because the facts are on your side and the public's on your side. You have elected officials on your side. But you haven't necessarily chosen to sort of go out necessarily and be really offensive on this one. Is that because that's just your style? Or is that because you're hopeful now that you can sort of bring it up again? Or is it because you're not going to be a commissioner and you're thinking of the governorship? Like, <laughs> how come you haven't been more aggressive about, you know, your disappointment in what happened? You know, I think probably the easiest um, answer, um, Jonathan, is that it's uh, I just keep working on it. You know, you, when you when you recognize that you don't have the votes to get this specific thing, then you work on every other part of it. Right. You talk with staff and, you know, I don't want to my own colleagues are opposed to something. And so I even want to be careful about what I talk about. Right. Um, but I've, I've helped support Shehale and Parks and Rec in their own considerations about whether they could, in fact, purchase the trail. And that's. You know, that's his own thing that's out there. Could that be a viable uh, thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the reality of it is that absolutely. Um, they have, you know, a master plan for trails all across Yamhill County. Okay, but the big question is, do they have a board and who's on it? They do. It's an elected board. Yeah. And they actually had two new members who are... Um, they did elect... Well, they elected at least two, one new member who who is not... A supporter of it interesting right you know so it's a but right there what they're doing right now is they're developing a trail from uh the fred meyer in in newburgh all the way down to the waterfront and then over to dundee you know they're committed to trails and that's different you know than a county we we didn't even know where to put the trail yeah that's like we don't have we it was like is it a park that, that struck me that i think i think that conversation would have been a lot different and, and perhaps a trail wouldn't have been stopped and this is no offense to Yamhill County and all work that folks can do, but you know it's not a, it's not a trail planning organization no. like someone like Metro or something else. And I realize, and I sense a big part of the opposition was saying we didn't hear about it in time. A classic thing it's people classic, say, yeah. and other issues that that you know people that plan trails like as a thing they do all the time. They're used to that. They're going to be way on the front end with like I think sometimes too much outreach, but they're going to do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's interesting, and I guess we'll have to see if, if the Shehalem Parks and Recs District can do that. Or, geez, I think even if it does get real, and that it is a real possibility, if they, if they uh, would even choose to move forward on it, just given the huge you know storm that it that it could bring bring to their agency. So just to just to kind of put a just to kind of put my own personal point on not personal, but just to put sort of a final point on the Yem Hellas discussion. Although I think we're going to be talking about it more in the future. You know, I think it's worth. letting folks know that while technically, you know, your view, quote unquote, you know, lost that vote in February, I just woke up this morning and saw the news that Commissioner Bershauer just barely squeaked by a recall vote attempt by a few signatures. So she's definitely feeling some consequences from the people, from a lot of voters in that area. And in the meantime, you're skipping around the state and doing a bunch of interviews to run for governor. So that's that's what I'm seeing as a trajectory after that vote. So I want to move on, of course, to the big thing. One thing I find fascinating is that as you're interviewed uh, all over the place from many different kind of outlets that have nothing to do with transportation, you're you're actually 
very, almost every single one of them, you've brought up transportation as an issue. You, yeah, you've brought up not only transportation, but like real specific issues about the Oregon Department of Transportation, ODOT. And I think almost all of them, you've actually brought up bicycling, which which I think is really interesting, of course. But And I think that may surprise a lot of people who end up talking to you or that inter- that talk to you in the media because they, they see you as this you know rural farmer person and you're not going to talk transportation. But so like, why is transportation such a big issue for you? I also noticed on your website, it has almost as many paragraphs as any other thing. And I did count. <laughs> I do that. So you have almost as many paragraphs for transportation on your policy platform than the other big issues like, you know, education and the environment, all that stuff. So why is transportation such a key thing for you? Well, if you go back to, I mean, that's really awesome. I love it. Um, You know, that means that I'm not, I mean, I'm coming to everything with the, like, I'm focusing on this person, their questions, the top issues as I saw, and I hear it from people. um, If I'm filtering through like what I'm hearing is climate change, the like political extremism and just the 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 chaos around that and then housing and homelessness and this like the cost of housing and um if you think about it like somebody walking or somebody riding their bike if we can make that happen that is one of the best ways to address climate change and also to get people to be healthy and also to build communities right when you when you're yeah. out in a place slowly you see things differently. Yeah, and you also bring it up as a way, another one of your main uh, principles is this idea of like bringing Oregonians together. And I know every mm-hmm. politician says that, but that you actually, you know, one of the few videos you have is called like, you know, bringing Oregonians together. And I was watching it and you say, let's come together around food. And you make this amazing pitch, you know, with the B-roll of farming and, and, and fresh food. Let's come together around the oceans and mountains, all standard stuff. And then all of a sudden, people on bikes pop up and let's come together around transportation. So it sounds to me like you're you're also seeing transportation as one of these fundamental things that can be, you know, not not as partisan. Some east side counties, um, a, a large portion of their um, economic activity that's not solar arrays um, is, is hunting, it's fishing, it's uh, riding your bike, um, it's rafting, it's the like being out there mm-hmm. uh, in the woods, in the canyons. And so if you think about the things that we actually can agree on and can make money off of, so because it's important for people to have like a, a way to make a satisfying income, I mean, that's one of them, right? Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it's definitely... You know, it's not it's not as kumbaya as oceans. I don't think. I think oceans we can pretty much have some really great stuff get passed, and you know, maybe if, right. we, if we're talking about you know, should Oregon still allow people to drive on them, we can get into some wedge Ooh. issues there. But oh my gosh. I won't I won't uh, belabor you with that one right now. But yeah. but kind of kind of on that note about you know Eastern Oregon, let's say. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people listening to this will know, but on your website you say ODOT should pledge to quote not permit any new fossil fuel infrastructure, which should include, for now, freeway expansions. So when adding lanes to freeways and, you know, quote, relieving bottlenecks is currently, I think you can look you can look factually and statistically, it's currently the number one priority at ODOT. How do you make the case that they shouldn't expand any more freeways and we should call these fossil fuel infrastructure? How do you make that case in front of a group of, you know, truckers in eastern Oregon who say they've got to relieve bottlenecks in Portland to get their wheat to market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the so when I when I drive th- drive through the Portland area with the kids and we talk about the freeways because we talk about things like the freeways, um, I always say that um, as a farmer, I know that the best thing that we can have on a freeway is certainty. 
So um, even if that means I'm going to drive 35 the whole time through a section, that means when I type it into my GPS in Eastern Oregon um, and it says seven hours, that by the time I get to Portland, it'll still be seven hours, that it's not going to be 12 more hours because there's some wild congestion. And really to, to that end, so the certainty is something that businesses really, most businesses thrive on. And the same goes for getting product to market. If I leave it a, a half an hour before I know I need to get there, and then I come to something that's, you know, that, that is the bottleneck, rather than being like, oh, well, I know next time it's going to take me 35 minutes, I've just missed my appointment, right? It's terrible. Or the boat. And, I, and Yeah, and I use that example about Eastern Oregon wheat farmers, not as a hypothetical, but that's literally one of the main influences on the legislature greenlighting what's now a billion dollars for I-5 at the Rose Quarter, where literally farmers from Eastern Oregon with wheat in their trucks that are coming to the aid of the pro-highway folks are saying, we've, we've just got to have more lanes. So yeah. that, that is actually a, a real and, thing. So, and it's not even just Eastern Oregon farmers. you know. So Yamhill County grass seed growers haul hay or haul straw, grass seed straw, to the port. So they're coming through town all the time. Um, so sort of on that note of funding, um, uh, you've also said that, you know, for you, funding must start with priorities rather than just simply getting more money like into an agency. Let's put the priorities first. I mean, I think all agencies say that for the most part. They don't all necessarily live it. So ODOT, for example, is coming into a lot of new money uh, with the Biden infrastructure package. Um, what would be your advice to ODOT uh, and the Oregon Transportation Commission, which oversees and sets policy for the state around transportation? What is your advice to them in setting those priorities? listening, actually listening before you make the budget. And I say that because I know that they're not. Well, they'd say they do. They could point to, you know, a bunch of open houses and tons of staffers that have a bunch of social media accounts. And they can say, we've heard from Oregonians that the number one problem is congestion on the freeway. They've actually been saying that for years. So how do you change that dynamic? You know, really, they, they only listen to certain people. I mean, the whole uh, House Bill 2017 package, which was, in, at least in Kate Brown, Governor Kate Brown's tenure, the biggest thing that's happened for transportation, money-wise, I remember the whole framework for that was set up with this thing called the Governor's Visioning Transportation Panel or something like that. And it was so discouraging. It was just all the same suspects, a bunch of you know trucking interests and business interests and chambers of commerce going and staring at bridges and taking a picture and saying, we've must earthquake-ready these bridges. They didn't really hear from people that suffer from getting around urban arterials. They didn't hear from people who, you know, can't get their kids on their bikes to school because they're too afraid of that intersection. So how do you get them to, you know, uh, change their priorities, which I'm assuming you agree are not the right ones at the moment or the status quo is not great. So how do you get them to change their priorities? And I, um, I will say that it's not even that I, I disagree with their priorities. It's just that that's not what people in communities across Oregon are saying. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. And so I, I have this weird and unique position in that I'm a commissioner, right? So I work with everybody. I also get to be on things like the Mid-Willamette Area Committee on Transportation. And so they present... I say I see regularly ODOT officials presenting what they're going to fund. And it's it's rare that we are able to push back. 
Uh, but it's very satisfying when we do. I will say that because we're like, you know, you've you've come to us and you're you're not telling us what you, you're going to fund and we're going to check the box on. We're going to tell you what our communities want and need. And often you said, actually, you said something about the intersection, the kid in the intersection. Obvious, often it's about fixing intersections that aren't safe. I think it's really interesting that that's what community leaders say. Right. And and again, I think the trick here is that ODOT says they hear that and they'll go mark that project down and they'll put it in their database of a thousand other intersections and they'll run it through some scoring thing and they'll run it through another formula and see if there's funding and attach it to a grant. Right. They do that. And at the end of that process, if it gets selected, it's going to be have a, a tiny little bit amount of money probably with whatever solution that ODOT engineers who have their own biases, right? Yeah. So that, But then in the meantime, while they're going through that process with one intersection, they're going to Metro just like they did yesterday at a committee meeting, and they're getting you know, $71 million more million to keep planning a big, huge mega project of the interstate bridge replacement, right? So right. again, it's this priority thing. And that's, I think the tough thing with pinning down ODOT is they can always answer your question in the affirmative, uh, and they can do it factually. They can say, we are listening. Oh, yeah, we have that project marked down somewhere. But it's like, which projects are getting the most money? When is it going to come and when is it our attention? And yeah. Right. So that's mm -hmm. really the key. So maybe, you know. Like I had never, I had never heard um, a, a demand for um, 10 more lanes in uh, um, Grand Ronde. I had never heard anybody say, God, can we have 10 more lanes and, and three more bridges, please? And I discovered that um, their concern was where 22 comes into uh, 18 at what we call Valley Junction. It's just east of the casino. And there's it's a it's a dangerous intersection because you people get impatient. We we could do something about that uh that doesn't didn't involve 10 lanes, 10 new lanes in rural Polk County. Yeah. So you're a member of the Mid-Willamette Area Commission on Transportation, which right. I'm glad you mentioned because those are a net those are ODOT has I think there's five or six of them. Are they region based? Or 12, yeah, okay, so ODOT has these area commissions on transportation, but the, the reality is right now we have four people that sit on the Oregon Transportation Commission, it's supposed to be five. They have shown zero urgency of filling that fifth spot, even though youth activists with Sunrise Movement and other people have said, name a youth representative, they haven't done that either. So there's And in our community, we're trying to get a travel member on it too. So there, Yeah, so know? there's four people, and they are in my judgment, relatively conservative when it comes to uh, transportation policy. They're also very supportive of ODOT, which I think is inherently problematic since they're supposed to be somewhat of a of a watchdog and hold ODOT accountable. They seem very chummy. I think I think they've spent a lot of time together, you know, getting beers and hanging out. And I think it shows in the way they speak about uh, ODOT and projects. Yeah. And that, that to me is a huge red flag. So, uh, You've mentioned. I'm so glad you're you, bringing up OTC. And you will. Well, I I, I want to bring it up in in regard to air commissions on transportation because you've also said I think it's even on the policy platform on your website that you think the acts those area commissions on transportation those should be elevated. So I mean, as governor, have you thought about the need to reform the OTC? What would you say about perhaps giving the acts or maybe a representative from each act or maybe it's one person who represents all the acts or something some sort of voting power on the OTC. Yeah. Um, I think that that's an interesting way to do it. I know that, well, I will say that every ACT member from across the state that I've heard from um, asks some version of what the hell are we doing here when we are getting these things? And, you know, the, the, there's, there's a chair of all the ACTs and the, they're, 
they're frustrated by it too. But one thing that, um, one thing that a, a very smart person um, who's very knowledgeable and very experienced and who will chuckle if they ever hear me talking about their ideas on here, and I will give them credit, but I'm not going to tell you who it is, um, said that the, the commissions really need to have a charge by the governor um, to be charged with enacting the policies um, of her administration in the in their area of expertise, right? So they are the the the, the act or sorry the OTC um, uh, LCDC uh, you know Land Conservation Development Commission sorry um, that they should be thinking what is the governor's priority in this part of life in Oregon. And how can I take my own personal experiences and shape those into policy to direct ODOT, to direct DEQ? Uh, and so that's the um, that's what this person, who I really appreciated their thoughts on it, was recommending. And I think that's a really good way to go forward. And it's a way for the acts to really have a um, like a new charge as well. Mm. So somewhat, you're, yeah. So having more of a direct line to the governor's office. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, besides that, since I kind of proposed that as an idea, is there any other thing that you think you know uh, the governor can do to to make the OTC uh, different, more progressive when it comes to transportation? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, obviously um, the uh, the OTC needs to have a full membership, and that full membership really needs to one represent the geographic uh, and cultural and um, race diversity of Oregon. Uh, but it also needs to be challenged to put into practice the the policies, the priorities of the governor. I mean, just like absolutely needs to, to be there doing that. Um, and almost as a surrogate of the governor, right? Um, telling uh, ODOT, exactly what they expect them to be doing and then saying okay are you following through on it it's that whole like set expectations then hold accountable and i i want to say jonathan i really feel like it's important to acknowledge that there are very good people at odot who are doing their mission and and at the same time it can be true that um that a cultural change is necessary and i've heard you mention that uh i think it was maybe just an offhand remark during an interview that um you're hoping for some turnover at ODOT as a way of hastening that culture change. Well, I think that, I mean, that's, that sounds, um, but I mean, that's really the, the expectation. That's the only way that you get culture to change really is for folks to, who are like, I've, I've, you know, I've had my time here. Um, I mean, realistically, if we look at just not, not to, not to focus in exclusively on ODOT, but if we look at agency heads um, and deputy directors, it's really white. It should absolutely be more diverse. It's says, just like, says the white guy who's absolutely. running for governor. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, agency heads need to reflect the experiences um, and values of the place, right? In all of its diversity. Okay, so switching gears a bit, what do you think about the I-5 Rose Quarter project and where do you see it going from here? What I think we'll see ultimately, um, if I have anything to do with it and if I if I listen as closely as I can, um, you know, I'm not in the business of tearing things apart. But what I do see is that um, if you can have certainty in the Rose Quarter for truckers, 
All right. And so maybe that's the congestion pricing, like a real certainty that, you know, you're going to drive 25 miles an hour, but you're going to get through it in 15 minutes and then you're on the rest of your way. Plus a, like a cap that actually does connect the community. Like, I think that's a win. That's what you said is that, you know, the cap and the, and the pricing, neither of those ODOT wanted to do initially. They're definitely coming around on the caps. They're still dragging their feet on the pricing. Yeah, and I guess if I do look forward, I think uh, that's probably what they would have to do or else they'll just face continued opposition. Uh, and then so I guess hopefully uh, if you spin that out, they do the caps, they do the pricing, and then they realize they don't need the extra lanes because the pricing took care of it. The one thing I must say that I am nervous about as I keep um, you know a, a, a close ear to uh, rural communities and like our um, urban fringe, as I, as I think about it, is um, you know I-205 is um is an important thoroughfare right um it doesn't go through the middle of town uh, th- like through the heart of portland and what i hear is an intention a plan to just toll it and i want to say that rural folks who are trying to get through the portland metro area are going to take 205 and i don't want people to be no matter what their time of the day is to have to pay a fee for a, a, a road when when we could be doing something like congestion pricing because if it's literally just to make money if yeah. if the tolling is just to make money um that's i mean i, I i'm careful about my words but i say that's disgusting if it's going to be on the backs of people yeah well you'll um y- you will be dealing with that uh, dynamic between a toll to to just have a flat fee for people that i think you know ODA in this stage of the game would just use for more more big projects that they and their friends in the OTC can push through? Um, or is it going to be actual dynamic pricing that's about behavior change and, and management? So I think given how slow ODOT is rolling on their all of their pricing-related stuff, which I think is, is purposeful, um, uh, you know, by the time, you know, if you were elected governor you'd definitely be in the middle oh, yeah. of those debates. On the I don't think we talked necessarily enough about climate change as it relates to transportation. One of the big concerns I have right now again it comes from that ability for ODOT to kind of like be Teflon with any criticism, right? So th- the way they answer the reason why they want wider freeways and more lanes and more capacity is they think and this is a real thing, they believe that idling and being stuck in traffic is bad for the environment. So decreasing bottlenecks, you know, making traffic go faster and smoother to them is a climate change strategy. This isn't an activist talking here that's just trying to have some conspiracy. Literally, the director of the agency, Chris Strickler, has said that. I heard of, I heard one of their bridge, their lead bridge engineer the other day said it in a meeting that they don't want people being stalled in traffic because it's bad for climate change. You're an ecologist. You have some science background. Do you agree with that? Is that a climate change strategy to make sure people can drive cars and trucks faster on the freeway without stopping? So I have a I have degrees right, in in science, and really, uh, so I say that I'm trained as a scientist. I try to like have that nuance of saying I'm not a scientist because I'm not practicing, right? But what that means is that my default is well, let's I have my values and I hear the priorities of the community, but. Like, what does the data actually show? And that's what I, um, as an example, I heard the same exact thing with respect to expanding, or sorry, finishing the bypass, the Newburgh Dundee bypass. And it's exactly what people said was, oh, well, we're going to eliminate. I said, what's the climate impact of this one way or the other? And they said, well, we're going to eliminate 
the idling of people, you know, in downtown, and that's going to be good for climate. And I said, well, is is there really a a benefit? Like, can we can we quantify that? And it was thank thank God for Congresswoman Bonamici because she was like, if you're going to ask me for a, an earmark for the bypass. I need to know that it's helping communities of color and marginalized communities and it actually impacts takes on climate. And so I said, anybody want to do that? Take it on. We actually need to have some real data here. Um, so there's, uh, you know, somebody said, I'm going to pay for a study, but I think it's really important when we look at it to be like, does it actually do that? I mean, are you skeptical of that claim? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm skeptical until I see the evidence, well, right? Well, and, I think... And what I mean by that is, um, because I saw I saw some comments of yours on Twitter, and what I started thinking about was, yes, maybe free-flowing traffic is technically less emissions and less particular emissions than idling, but if we're talking about a hundred million or a billion dollar project let's look at the options for getting people out of their cars into different modes. Right. Cause we could say like, if we put every, give everybody a bike and build a bike freeway, what will that do? Right. There's that. But I think the other big thing that ODOT is missing and I, and I, and I, and I need to do more investigation to find out exactly where, you know, like director Strickler's uh, claims come from. My strong hunch is that there's definitely research. It's actually a lot of federal research you can find that says idling is worse for the environment because of particulates. Yeah. But I, they don't go to the next step, which is free-flowing traffic equals more car trips, equals more traffic. And that, if you think of the life cycle cost of the car, if you think of all the other negative externalities of those cars over time, and ultimately, sorry folks, it's not the Jetsons, you're going to have bottlenecks if you invest in a system like that. I was just going to say you're that- You're never going to get free how flowing. How long- It's like a piece of- How long until we don't have free flowing again, right? You can't, it's impossible. You cannot put that back in the bottle, right? So again, but it does, it's good for them because they- they just say, well, the research shows, but there's there's more nuance to it than that. You know, it's also like job security for them because, yeah, they're going to be whack-a-moling bottlenecks forever in, into perpetuity, which is all they want because it's job security and it keeps them comfortable, you know? So, like, that's that's what's, I think, just a huge red flag is that we actually have the highest leadership of our transportation system in Oregon with going on a completely wrong fallacy around climate as it, as it relates to transportation. Yeah. So so I, I wonder what you think about a framing of the transportation issue um, in terms of its impacts on people. You know, in Portland, we hear a lot about yeah. gun violence. Uh, actually, all over Oregon, people are talking about Portland's gun violence. Yeah, we, so we hear true. about it a lot of times. Right. But there's also an epidemic of traffic violence here. Uh, traffic crashes, people sort of being held hostage in their in their streets because they're afraid. Uh, I mean, the number of stories, I mean, I, I have this sort of working theory that sort of per capita to a person, especially in urban areas, transportation is like a larger daily threat to people than guns and crime. I think I think you can make a real case for that. And we actually see here in Portland, we have a transportation commissioner who I think is starting to understand that and starting to make, well, let me say Commissioner Hardesty does understand I was that. Say, I think she does. She totally yeah. understands it. And she, what I was meant to say, she's starting to do some things about it actually on the street, right? So a couple, yes. couple weeks ago, she put barrels out and sort of barricades to try to slow people down since a lot of the gun violence is related to people in getaway cars speeding right. through the neighborhood, which I thought was a fascinating sort of like in a lot of ways a watershed right? event, right? I don't think it was a lot like, of people- oh, I can use the transportation. 
I can use PBOT yeah. to respond to this thing that people so, talk about as a public safety thing, right? Yeah. And so, but, you know, this has been something that's been growing. And I think Commissioner Hardesty was impacted by something that happened, uh, I believe it was back in the, this January, the January before, um, of a man who took his car and just rampaged through our neighborhoods and, and hit a bunch of people. It was terrible. And I think that is the that is the place when, you know, uh, Commissioner Hardesty, at least for her part, uh, really started to use and, and, and understand the term traffic violence and vehicular violence. Because before that, I mean, activists and advocates and I'm, people like myself have been talking with that framing for a long time. And actually, specifically, um, down in Salem, somebody from the Street Trust was testifying at one point and used that term. And the co-chair of the Joint Transportation Committee really bristled. She kind of stopped the meeting. And she just sort of, she was almost resentful that, that that person giving the testimony that used the word traffic violence, she she was really, it was just really sensitive. She, it really brought up a lot of stuff for this, you know, powerful co-chair of the Transportation Committee. So I'm curious from your perspective, do you think talking about the sort of scourge and the amount of traffic violence in our communities, do you think that could be like an effective political framing of the issue? I think it's so powerful to tell new stories about the world that we inhabit. And I think that talking about um, the dangers of being out in the world, um, in a world that is really car dominated, and we've set up to be car, car dominated, we have to tell new stories. Um, and that's a way of doing it, right? And we can connect it to political extremism, right? Because there's this thing with using cars to charge protesters. So it's it's all mm. it's all connected. Yeah, I I think that like. Joanne, uh, Commissioner Hardesty um, and Metro Council President Lynn Peterson together have increasingly what I see as a, a very effective um, combination of leaders, too. And I, I've never met um, Commissioner Hardesty, I, but I've, I, I see her becoming more effective at responding to community uh, and like the the challenges and the heartache. Um, through using the the tools she has, right? Yeah, I, I, I like that you brought up, you know, the importance of telling new stories. And I think, to me, one of the coolest stories I've gotten a chance to cover over the years is these small towns in Oregon, a lot of them rural mountain towns that have seen the sort of the green in money that cycling can bring. Uh, I've just been fascinated. I, I, I've befriended a guy who owns a ranch out outside of Hepner, okay. and you would love this. Casey, you've got to get out to this guy's ranch because he started it as a hunt. It's called Trio Bike Ranch. Okay. That's how I know it. But it's Trio Ranch to everybody else. Right. And as you move up in Oregon politics, you're going to end up going because all yeah. the big time politicians <laughs> apparently hunt at this guy's ranch. Oh does my gosh. Quail and pheasant, right? So got it. He has this really successful ranch, a little outside of Hepner, uh, where he's you know born and raised. Families from there. Um, but then one day he saw a bunch of cyclists coming by. I think, man, maybe Cycle Oregon or something. He saw this big pack of riders coming by, and he realized, you know, all during the winter we're snowed in. I'm not making any money. Yeah. And this light bulb went off several years ago. And so he invested all this money into making a bike, you know, bike tourism, basically. Yeah, for a couple of years he was really like this, you know, shining star. He'd be at all the Travel Oregon events, and everybody was like, let's traipse this guy in because he's the he's the rural perfect illustration of like, the bike economy and what bike tourism can do. do is, is that an issue you have experience with? Do you see that as somebody who gets biking, who's biked yourself, who who is concerned about transportation issues, um, but also comes from a rural area? Is that something you think is worthwhile? Sometimes I feel like when we talk about it, it's it's just something bike people think is cool, but doesn't really have a lot of juice beyond that. Am I wrong there? Like, what do you think? I mean, that, that's how people framed, um, some people framed the Yamhill West Westsider Trail. Um, I, I don't, 
for me personally at the time, it was really about getting people from Yamhill to Carlton safely, right? That's it's you know connecting these places that are so close together. But remind uh, remember that I I grew up in Lincoln City and that bike shop it was open specifically on 101 to cater to the folks who were coming from north to south, right? Like that's that was the the only reason that we really existed and then we sold bikes to people in town, you know, things other than Schwinn's, right? It was it was the first place you could buy a really quality bike. And so I I, from my very earliest, you know, teenage years, that was that was the world I lived in. Yeah, it's one of the things I think is unfortunate and sort of funny, sad about the people who say they're so opposed to Portland Creep, but then they sort of just ignore or don't see or choose not to see the dozens and dozens and dozens of small towns around Oregon yeah. that are welcoming cycling. Oh, oh my gosh. Printing money and putting up people in hotels. I mean, I think the town of Independence is the, the most recent one that, you know, I've been talking to some folks there. They, they've got a new hotel. It's a bike hotel. They're like, come down and stay here. Tell everybody what a bike place we are. And I heard you mention recently Willamina. Yeah. Uh, logging town. Are they doing stuff as well? So you've actually. Right, right. Thanks for getting back to that. Like many small towns that are still alive, right? They have reinvented themselves over the years. They were brick city. Um, they literally didn't cut any timber except to fire the brick kiln. And um, they, they carved out this bend in the Willamina Creek and all of McMinnville and a lot of Portland um, were built with the brick from Willamina. And then when the mine played out uh, in the 50s, then they started logging and they started logging really big trees on federal lands. You know, eventually those are no longer big trees anymore. Um, so they switch over to private land. They call themselves Timber Town USA. And th- then you think like, when you think of timber, you think of Willamina. But they've slowly realized that as as mills shut down, uh, as consolidation happens, as trees get smaller, as more mechanization happens, right? So in the mill and in the woods, things are safer. And so you don't need as many people out there that they need different ways of um, living with the rest of the world. They can't just be their own isolated pocket. And so they're looking at we are um, the, the gateway essentially to the coast range and the Tillamook State Forest and Syusala National Forest. All these uh, gravel roads, you can get you can get lost, right? Or you can get lost in a, in a good way. And they want to be part of that, right? So they like they set up um, the the lot next to the city hall as a bike camping area, and they're they're changing their transportation system plan so that there's paths all around town. They're doing a, a loop around town so that you there's always a way to get everywhere. It'll be a little longer. They're building a pump track. Like they're gonna have the first pump track in Yamhill County in a town of you know six hundred people. It's so cool. Wow. And they're gonna build, you know, they're probably gonna get the first railroad right-of-way rails to trails in Yamhill County, even though there were 20 years of work on the ambulance. Yeah. And I just love that. I, I love it. I, I just think you're so onto something that you're including bicycling like directly and specifically in mm-hmm. as one of these things that can bring Oregonians together. Oh, yeah. I, I just think not enough Oregonians, I think, appreciate how the thread of cycling has run through our state for so many years. I mean, you're sitting right in front of a, a bike map here from 1896. It's called the Cyclist Roadmap of Portland, right? So from that to, you know, like the story I was telling you about, you know, the Trio Bike Ranch, you know, where he's got hunters in the winter and bikers in the in the summer coming in and he's, he's doing a good business. 
Uh, I know a lot of uh, hunters like bikes because they're silent and you can put a rack on them and take out. You know, oh, absolutely. Take You're out, out in the woods and you will regularly, that's, you know, they're on bikes. Yeah. To these small towns doing tourism. And, and like you mentioned, gravel roads. I mean, gravel road cycling is, who knows, by this point, bigger than mountain biking almost. Oh, yeah. And not to mention the mountain biking town of Oak Ridge mm-hmm. and a bunch of other places. You know, Visit McMinnville. So Visit McMinnville is considered one of the best um, destination marketing organizations in Oregon. Um, they are excellent at what they do. And one of the things they realized, we can't build trails. We're not a we're a visitor organization. We're not a trail builder. But we have, uh, what do we have 350 miles of gravel roads in Yamhill County with an ADT of three, or an average daily trip of three or four. For. And it's just like a log truck here or a, a hay trailer there. Um, and so they started building the map of, hey, come and ride your gravel bike here because it's amazing. Well, well, I love it. Kind of on that note, I hope you can uh, t- re- retell me this story that, that or this concept that you shared with me when we talked, you know, many months ago. Um, you said something about and it definitely relates to cycling in rural areas. You said something about that, that people have a misperception about rural areas, and you said something about the myth of public space out in the oh, country, yeah. which I find really interesting, mm-hmm. especially as we talk about, you know, building places for people to walk and bike in these areas. Um, so, t- tell, can you kind of flesh that out for me? What do you mean by that? Absolutely, actually. So I. Um... I spend a lot of time on water issues, so I put together this morning a presentation for the Home Builders Alliance, the Portland Home Builders Alliance, um, about water issues. Because I was like, this is a housing issue that you probably know nothing about. And you don't need to know about it. You just need to, I need your support uh, for all these things. And then as I was um, thinking about it, I realized that there are many decisions that I've had the opportunity to make, the privilege of making in my role as commissioner. Um, But if you ask the 11, almost 12 year old in the household, what the most important decision was that his papa made. (laughs) It was opening the gates on a gravel road that could, so that people could access public land from the county, from the flatlands. It was a gate that was put up, two gates that were put up by Weyerhaeuser um, and um, on a county road with county county permission. And then we we essentially forced them to open them up and we took on the maintenance of that road and getting access to that public land for my son was the most important thing. And uh, we, you know, so we spent a lot of time out there just so that we can, you know, benefit from that thing. And the people we encounter, every single one of them is so happy to be out there. And so if, we, if you can, if you can bear with me, the, the thing is that in rural Oregon, there's a lot of private land, and usually that private land is the thing between you on, say, a county road and that public land that you want to get to. Because there's a lot of public land in Oregon, but it's inaccessible to the average ordinary Oregonian, including the Willamette River and other rivers. And so if you think about it, um, you might have you might see ten people in a day compared to being in Portland, where you might see ten thousand. Um, but balancing that like rural, I don't know, solitude is the fact that there isn't land that you don't have to pay to be on. Um, and I feel 
strongly that one of the most important things that we have in this place that's so beautiful is we have this public land and we should be able to access it. Uh, and that's really, that's part of the like working on the trail. Um, that's part of ac- getting these gates open is so that we can be out in the, the landscape. I feel really strongly that having people on the landscape is one of the best ways to rebuild the connection between humans and the place that we have by our modern quote modern living have separated ourselves from and you know that's that comes back to me in the ocean is you know there's no separation you're just a tiny tiny part of a bigger landscape when you're out in the ocean you better learn how to be with it and i think that it's important for all of us uh, as a human a, a species to rebuild that connection and I will say that for if we think about it, um, the world of climate change, um, where we need to take action, we actually need to be repopulating um, or getting eyes back on places that we've maybe as uh, a culture left to other people. Um, and I say that I'm thinking about things like the timber industry has had fewer and fewer people in the woods. And um, what that allows them to do is it allows them to treat it like a, a farm field, only it's a 45 degree angle and a highly erodible soil. And there's, they can put in a culvert and then they don't worry about blocking the culvert and the culvert blows out. Fish can't get there. There, We've got silt in our rivers. We like really need people on the landscape to, um, to help with the healing. And I know that for some people they are like, humans are bad for the landscape. And I really feel the opposite is that we can't even know what we're missing until we're there. Yeah. You talk a lot about going into communities and listening to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, this summer I was surprised uh, to see you and your son on a bike in Portland. That's right. Not that I'm surprised to see you on a bike, but just, you know, <laughs> it was just like on a group bike ride. I think it was like during Pedal Palooza. So yeah. did you did you hear anything from Portland bike riders uh, while you were here? Did you take anything away from that experience that you could share? Yeah, well, it was um it was um my um, son and daughter uh, who who joined me and they had never ridden in a city before. You know, they're like, you should see them on a drop, right? Like they can take the berms and just, they can, they can ride uh, with the, you know, we, we aren't $6,000 mountain bike people, um, but with their farm bikes, um, they really can ride. And so, the, but they'd never been in a city and they were very nervous about it. And so we parked on Clinton street in the greenway and, uh, joined uh, the ride over to the farmer's market. I think Hami was producing uh, or was organizing. And the thing that I loved about it was that they were nervous. And then it was literally four, four, five people who were like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ride beside him. Or like, you know, I got this one or like, hey, you know, here we're coming to this. You, you, oh, yeah, there you go. And they just like they they came up alongside them in the like the best metaphorical sense of it. And being like, I'm here. I'm going to show you how to do this. And they just felt like um, it really was like a village and enveloping them. I mean, like, we're going to mentor you now. And they loved it as a result, even though they went, you know, into the heart of downtown and back again. The stories they can tell their friends. Oh my gosh, it was so great. So I, I think that. it's really important to remember that, um, uh, especially with the cycling community, that there's so many people who are looking to help each other. Um, that I hope that when when somebody is like, "Hey, can I ride my bike somewhere?" or like, "I just can't afford to to drive a car. Is it safe?" That they know somebody that they can reach out to, or somebody will be like, "Hey, here's how you do it. Here's the place you go." Because um, my kids got that opportunity. 
I will also say that the North Portland taco ride was also really fun. Oh, you did that one. Although I bailed after six tacos and there oh. were still like five or six more to how, go. How were the tacos as a food and vegetable person? Were they good? They were good. Awesome. Yeah. Casey Kula, thanks so much for coming in. It was great to talk to you. It was so much fun talking to you, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks for doing your work. That was Yamhellas County Commissioner and gubernatorial candidate Casey Kula. The Bike Portland Podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe to our podcast at bikeportland.org podcast. Our theme music is by Kevin Hartnell. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss, and until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.